Do you hear that? That mighty sound is the wind blowing and the waters ebbing and flowing. It's all under a gloriously sunny sky on Haida Gwaii. The sounds surround you much of the time on the islands, and for residents of this natural haven off the west coast of northern BC, it's the sound of hope and new beginnings. Hi, I'm Susan Elrington, along with Caitlin Vernon, and this is Mission Transition, Clean Energy and Beyond. This podcast is produced by Sierra Club BC. And this week, we're taking you to Haida Gwaii, where residents have gathered in a community hall to work on an ambitious plan to be living off 100% renewable power in just five years. Who should own and benefit from this opportunity? Because we have to be realistic that this is also one of the most important economic projects in modern time. Using hindsight, we have foresight. Just as our ancestors have had to go through hard transitions to survive us as a people and to survive Haida Gwaii as our home, we are here today to go through the hard transition of continuing their legacy. Samsu has a negative carbon footprint of 12 tons. A lot of the same challenges we have and within two decades, right from the beginning, they've uh, switched it right around. Stuff like this is really exciting for Haida Gwaii because I strongly believe we have the potential to be what Samsu is to Denmark. We can be that to Canada. Those are some of the voices talking at an energy symposium held on Haida Gwaii last fall. We're going to take you there, inside the highs and lows, the obstacles and achievements, and we'll show you what other BC communities could learn from the Haida Gwaii experience. Caitlin Vernon is with me now, and Caitlin, this symposium was a significant event for Haida Gwaii, wasn't it? As we discovered in season one of our Mission Transition podcast, Haida Gwaii is particularly ambitious about the transition to clean energy because right now they're ferrying over about 10 million litres of diesel to power the island. They're burning diesel to power the island. Yeah, and that's why the story of clean energy on Haida Gwaii is important. It's a story that, for some people, started 12 or 13 years ago with the purchase of heat pumps and solar panels. But when I met with the head of the Haida Heritage Museum, she told me there's another way to look at it. We were sitting outside the museum with the ever-present sound of the tides and the wind in the trees, and Jisgung Nika Collison told me that the story actually started thousands of years ago. The Haida of today, we came out of the ocean. Our knowledge and oral histories span back to a time before human occupation on Earth because of the supernaturals of Haida Gwaii that we're inextricably connected with. People say we've been here 10,000 years. We've been here far longer. Our own people have lived through being grassland people, ice people, and now people of the ocean. The supernatural, I am told, have taught us everything we know with how to live with and from Haida Gwaii, about our responsibilities to Haida Gwaii. Nika says understanding this history can provide some guidance in these modern times. What we learn from our ancestors through geological, environmental changes and social changes, very rough ones, um, through colonial regimes and long before colonial regimes, you know, is, is this ability to adopt what works in that, in that you can adapt it to a Haida way of life and to face what, what doesn't work. There'll be tough transitions and 
we are weaving together knowledge, Haida knowledge, Western science knowledge. We're going to be weaving together energy sources and we need to weave together our working together, no matter our background. You know, everything is connected. Everything depends on everything else. So it's shifting away from the comfort of subconscious or unconscious or whatever expectation that we deserve light. We earn light. And, and Caitlin, this idea that everything is connected is key to understanding the Haida Gwaii approach to clean energy. It is, and you'll hear that idea throughout the story that we're telling, how Haida principles are being incorporated into the transition of getting Haida Gwaii off of fossil fuels and how this connects to and builds on previous leadership for Haida title and governance and the struggle to end old growth logging in Guayanas. And, and Caitlin, those principles were evident at the Haida Gwaii Renewable Energy Symposium in Old Masset last fall. Good morning to everybody. First of all, my name is Kil Tlotska, uh, Peter Lent, and I'm the elected president for the Council of the Haida Nation. I'd like to acknowledge all of our hereditary chiefs, uh, all of our elders, all of our women held in high esteem. And, to those and as he Haida gives Gwaii, the opening address to the Clean Energy Symposium, Peter is clear about the push to get to zero diesel. So we've all heard the, the storyline. Uh, Haida Gwaii burns diesel at an alarming rate, something we all know that needs to be addressed and it needs to be addressed soon. It's a difficult situation when you have the reputation that we have of people who will go to any means to protect our, our islands. But, uh, you know, here we are, you know, burning diesel uh, at red rates that's, uh, you know, the, the highest in the province. So we haven't, been able to get, we haven't been able to solve this problem yet. So this is something that will inevitably happen. It's not a matter of identifying or accepting that this is our top priority, because it is. Getting us off diesel is a top priority. But the lessons learned over the past few years as we've been tackling this, this, this issue is that we've realized that everybody here can be part of this journey towards becoming a true sustainable island. That was former president of the Council of the Haida Nation, Kiltlotska Peter Lanton, opening the Renewable Energy Symposium. Now, he wasn't kidding when he said everyone can be part of the journey. That was made clear in Skidigit. Skidigit is a Haida community of roughly 800 people. Non-Kiltzla Trent Marais is the deputy chief councillor for the Skidigit Band Council. We've been working on this for a long time now. Uh, we started... 12 years ago, looking at our, our energy, what we were using, how we were using it, and what our future demands were going to be. From there, we moved into understanding our neighbors, what their power use was, where our power was coming from. We started hosting uh, energy workshops. So it was important to us uh, to teach everybody how we were using power and, and basically how it was, where it was coming from. Now, Trent was saying how they first looked at what their energy needs were and then teamed up with BC Hydro to install energy-saving kits in village homes. Hydro usually sends in its own technicians to install the kits, but Trent says they convinced BC Hydro to do it the hideaway, and it's having real benefits for people in the community. We wanted to build our own capacity, so we taught our own staff to install these units in, in every home in Skidigan. Uh, from there, it kind of naturally evolved. We're currently doing an energy conservation assistance program, and BC Hydro in the past would train people, or not train people, they would import people from Alberta to come in and install these in your homes. So we're piloting a program with them right now where they train our people, our people install, 
we monitor it together and then go forward from there. And they opened up that program to all of Haida Gwaii uh, because of our work with them. And that's not the only program. The Band Council has installed a heat pump in every home in the village to offset the high costs of heating homes with diesel fuel. But then the costs went up instead of down, which is another example of how everything is connected to something else. So after we uh, installed all the heat pumps, uh, we realized that we actually increased some people's bill because now they were using um, air conditioning. A lot of our elders never had air conditioning. Uh, The first year we installed the heat pumps, we had a heat wave. Luckily, we have installed every heat pump in all the elders and disabled people, people with health impairments. We installed every unit in their place before that heat wave. So we had a lot of elders having the first time ever air conditioning. So that cost kind of rose. This is an example of how energy policy is inextricably linked to health and poverty issues. Those connections are top of mind as the villages try to figure out where to go from here. Trent says Skidigit has invested heavily in monitoring all of its energy use in the village in order to analyze it. And I also spoke with Lori Weedman. She's the chief administrative officer for Queen Charlotte Village, just a few kilometers down the road from Skidigit. Last fall, we had an all-islands protocol meeting. So that's where all of the councils on island get together to discuss island issues. That meeting we held was specifically to talk about energy. So there's been... After installing solar panels at the school and working on LED street lighting, Lori says the opportunity to apply for government funding pushed the villages to work together for renewable energy. So what we agreed to do at that meeting was each of the communities, we we didn't have one idea for this is going to be the panacea, the thing that's going to take us all off of the diesel and we'll be happy and skipping off together. So we didn't have anything like that. But what we did was we had all had a lot of ideas of different things that might work for us. So at that table, we all agreed that we were going to go away and for our own individual communities, we were going to try to determine what would be the best mix for us. And the intention is we're then all going to get back together and look at can we do a joint regional application for some of this funding? uh, Because we do believe that that's a powerful thing to do. Sue, whenever I'm so lucky as to visit these islands, I'm struck by how they get things done. The secret sauce seems to be that it's a really beautiful place where there's an unquestioning recognition of Haida title to the land. There's a willingness to work together, both Haida and non-Indigenous. And there's a real willingness to do the hard work that's required. Yeah, Caitlin, all true. It's probably a good idea to mention a few facts about Haida Gwaii at this point. You know, there are roughly 4,000 people living on Haida Gwaii. About 45% are Haida. The Council of the Haida Nation is the governing body with a mandate to govern Haida Gwaii and her surrounding waters. And the CHN is striving for full independence, sovereignty, and the self-sufficiency of the Haida Nation. And that governing structure was resurrected during the stand at Athlete Gwaii when the Haida drew a line at Lyle Island to stop old growth logging on the islands. That standoff was led by the Haida. Most memorably, there were images of Haida elders and their regalia being arrested on a logging road. It led to the creation of the Guaihanas National Park Reserve and Haida Heritage Site 
And really, it sparked a cultural and governance resurgence of the Haida as the rightful government on these islands. For those curious to learn more about this, the Haida have just published a book called Athligwai, which tells this story, this powerful story, in their own words. And, Caitlin, you can't understate the impact of Lyle Island for the Haida nation. Michael Nicol Yaklanis is a Haida artist and activist. He was living on Haida Gwai at the time, and he was involved at Athligwai. And he says the governing structure that came out of that dispute is highly unusual. The Guayanas Agreement is signed by Canada, recognizes two simultaneously existing views of the world. And one is a nation state based on uh, God save our gracious queen, and the other is an indigenous. And that document actually has parallel columns, and it says indigenous people, Haida, see the world this way. Canada sees the world this way. Notwithstanding the divergence of above, here's where we agree to go together. So it's a very respectful place. Caitlin, out of that, there was a recognition of the highest sense of responsibility to the environment. And so over the next five years, a fund was developed to help the Haida make the lands, the islands, environmentally and socially sustainable. It's called the Gwai Trust. And the government didn't want to find itself in the middle of local differences of opinion about how to spend the trust money. So the Gwai Trust was established on the condition that islanders work out a way to manage the trust locally. Michael Yagulana says on Haida Gwai, they agreed consensus was the best way for them to manage the trust, and that's worked well so far. He says governments of all stripes could learn from that when it comes to funding energy projects. Why don't you just give the money to your community leaders there and say, here, make your decisions based on consensus. You've got to trust the local capacity, and then people feel like they belong. So the Gwai Trust gives the Haida the ability to invest in this transition to clean energy. But, but how then does the island move beyond buying heat pumps, which cuts their consumption, but still relies on diesel to generate the electricity they're using? To get to zero diesel, they're going to have to find another source of electricity. And we'll look at that after this quick break. Hi, I'm Galen Armstrong. I'm the lead organizer at Sierra Club BC. And what I do is work with volunteers across the province. One volunteer that I've been really impressed by is Jennifer Houghton in Grand Forks. She survived the, the flooding in, in Grand Forks the last uh, three years. There were two major floods. And she learned about the, the impact of forestry and clear cuts. She's getting more and more people in her community involved. Um, she's organized several rallies. Uh, letter writing parties and um, her, her energy is is so inspiring we need many more volunteers and more people involved you can go to our website sierraclub.bc.ca you're listening to mission transition clean energy and beyond we're a podcast miniseries produced by sierra club bc i'm susan elrington with caitlin vernon and we're talking about the effort to shift high to guai to produce a renewable energy for their power instead of burning diesel before the break, we were talking about some of the ways that communities on Haida Gwaii are reducing the amount of electricity they're consuming. And to get to zero diesel, they're also looking at ways to produce or generate their own electricity. And Kiltlotska Peter Lantin, the former president of the Council of the Haida Nation, he says many islanders have been talking about this for decades. And the process started in earnest about five years ago. That's when, without consulting the Council of the Haida Nation, BC Hydro unilaterally sent out a request for proposals for clean energy generation, all to replace diesel on Haida Gwaii. Well, sounds great, but as Peter says, it wasn't good from the CHN's perspective. 
Because I think for first, I mean, the, the big overarching reality here is that the Haida people, like, you know, the Haida nation are actually fighting for title to these islands. And what that really means is, you know, who, who makes the decisions? So that's something that people don't really see or feel on a daily basis, but that's what we do every day, which is to assert ourselves and fight for the, you know, what we believe is the right to make decisions in our own land. So we, uh, you know, going back probably five years ago, we had this conversation with BC Hydro around, you know, who's really going to drive this decision. And at that time it was them. So we had to deal with that up front is to say, well, that's, that's wrong. And it's, you know, fundamentally in itself. So Hydro backed off, but left behind the 24 proposals it had received in response to that call for proposals. And the ball was back in CHN's court. So we just took the took the helm and said, "Look, we will drive this process and we'll apply the criteria that we want to narrow down that list of 24 uh, using more local criteria." So we've all done that, you know. So like, if people people don't know the story, but there was 24 proposals. Uh, we're now down to about six. Uh, what you saw this weekend was, you know, some presentations from some, from a lot of them that have been really on the ground, you know, like innovating, you know, new technologies and things like that. Inside of it, there's a set of swash plates that you can change the angle. That was like on the video. Yeah. You could, so okay. When the water's running super fast, yeah. they can be at full stroke and pump lots of water. Yeah. If it's running at half speed, the computer changes the angle of those swash plates and it pumps some water. Sue, I recognize that voice. That's Laird Batum at the Yorbrook Tidal Barge that was tied up at the Masset Government Dock. He was showing residents how the tidal pump would work. That's right. This is one of six projects that Peter mentioned that Haida Gwaii is now considering as a source of renewable energy. It's pumping at a constant pressure. And then we can use that with, uh, to put through a hydro tur- conventional hydro turbine and push extra water to an upland storage to power it through the slot top. Caitlin, the Yorbrook folks are all from Haida Gwaii. This is in all ways a local initiative. You know, they've been working on this project for years, since 2010. And they're excited about the potential for Haida Gwaii. Clyde Greeno is the COO and an owner of Yorbrook. He says the potential lies not just in terms of getting to zero diesel, but also what developing this technology could mean for the economic prospects of the island. It'll provide a power base that you can actually have secondary manufacturing. Everyone here talks about value added, but you can't have a value added sawmill if you if you can't turn on the switch. One of our partners, Dan, uh, they have a pellet mill and a sawmill. They have a 300 amp motor. When they turn it on, there's brownouts and masset, right? So you need to have that. We need to have that reliability of power. And if you take our project and combine it with with some of the other things that people want to do, wind and solar and stuff, and, and build up that, you know, so that we have adequate power to, to, to run, you know, some sort of small, you know, there's all sorts of advantages for the cedar and all the different things that we have here that we could be, you know, we could create jobs with small, you know, small scale manufacturing and selling a special high degree product, whether it be fish, whether it be, you know, cedar carp, whatever it happens to be, right? So so that's one of the advantages. And we, we believe that we can manufacture these things here, train people, so long-term, sustainable jobs, good jobs, welders, machinists, that kind of thing. You know, I think there's a great potential here for, you know, this is a declining resource-based economy, so let's let's cut the bullshit and get it, get it done. Sue, what I take from all this is that renewable energy isn't just about climate change. It, it's a form of economic development that could power small-scale industries that employ local people. 
one of the inspiring parts of the Haidegawai story is how they're being really intentional about setting a goal, this goal of being 100% renewable energy by 2023, and then working together to achieve that goal, which they recognize is going to require a comprehensive plan for how to produce enough energy to meet all of Haidegawai's needs. Yep. How do you do that, Caitlin, when some people think the answer lies in the tides, other people think in the wind or the sun, and I don't know, maybe it's some combination of all of the above? Right. So choices are going to be needed and also thinking about who's going to pay for it and where are these projects going to be located. And that brings us back, Caitlin, to the Haidegawai Renewable Energy Symposium, where they looked at a lot of these questions. Now, the symposium was organized by the Council of the Haida Nation, and they organized it along with a grassroots nonprofit group called Sweelaweed Sustainability Society. Right. And we had spoken with them in season one of Mission Transition about this goal to be at zero diesel. Sweelaweed has been very effectively raising funds for a number of solar panel projects, for example, on youth camps, uh, at youth centers in Skidigit and in Old Masset and on other buildings. And they're now looking for the best way to move towards this goal of the whole island being zero diesel. And Jalen Edenshaw is on the board of directors of Sweelaweed. A day after the symposium wrapped up, I caught up with him at his carving shop. He was putting details on eagle feathers on a totem designed for Whistler. Now, Jalen told me it hasn't been easy to decide how to move forward with new energy options for Haida Gwaii. Again, that's sort of been the major issue: is is who's gonna whose project's gonna go forward, and yeah, that'll that'll be still the challenge moving forward. I think you know there will have to be compromises, and I think uh, really what we heard out of the energy forum this weekend was that uh, people are willing to work together, you know, the, at the at the individual level, and so hopefully that'll again move into the the government level. You know, I think one of the things that was brought up too was. You know, if it's not working for everybody, then it's not going to work because at the end of the day, we're going to need these people to, to uh, lean on, right? So if someone is slighted or someone's left out of the equation and then later on down the road, we need those people for help, they're not going to be there for us. So, you know, it's important to include the non, non-Haida communities and it's important to at least try to get as many... Uh, people to benefit and to to take part as possible. Not easy, but important. So they've stayed committed to working together to make this shift happen. Sweelaweed organized the symposium with folks from all over the islands to talk about the options. And Caitlin, as you recall, the discussions were lively, but at every moment they were respectful. And there was a reason for that. Dana Moraes is one of the conference organizers, and she laid out the ground rules for the symposium. I would like to ask Neona Cloud to read out our agreements about how we would like to conduct ourselves through these next two days. Which means that all acts must be done with respect. Which means to ask first, to make sure you have permission before you're doing what you're doing, or saying what you're saying. To make things right, that you as an individual are obligated to make things right. That everything is connected and that everything depends on everything else. How will you know? This is often called the hideaway, and I know you heard more from Barbara Wilson about that. Yeah, Barbara is a Haida citizen, and she's working on her master's in education right now and focusing on climate change. It was our ancestors' way, you know, and, and we're having to, to shed 
the things that we've learned through colonialization and go back and embrace. Thank God people know what the old way was like because now we know where we can go. We know that we don't need all the, um, I want to say all the stupidness of, of um, colonialism, capitalism. You know, there are some good things that came with it, but by far I think they're outweighed with by the kinds of laws my ancestors had. You know, the one that said, if one person's hungry, everybody's hungry. If, if somebody's without a house, it's because there are no houses available for everybody. You know, those are the kinds of things that we need to embrace and say, what can we do better? How can we do it better? Part of the magic of Haida Gwaii is how willing the non-Indigenous residents are about respecting and following the Haida way of doing things. This drive to do things better was evident throughout the symposium. We heard about a project the kids are leading to convert plastic garbage into fuel. And Jalen Edenshaw's daughter, Hannah, talked about that project at the symposium. Okay, um, hi, I'm Hannah. I got into this plastic to fuel idea when Mr. Schulbuck was telling me about it last year. Um, plastic's like such a huge problem and everybody knows about it. And it's involvement like that that makes Jalim proud and grateful that Hana is carrying on the legacy of her grandfather, Gujaw. He, of course, was instrumental in the fight for self-determination. Well, I think it's, you know, it's always, ideally anyway, there's always a, a younger generation coming up. Um, you know, there's only so much energy any of us have, and, uh, and uh, you know, people step into different roles as they get older, but, but um, you know, having, having my dad as a role model for my kids to see, you know, the, the things that he's done, you know, it, it gives, um, gives them a, a good uh, grounding and a good place to start, you know, if, if they uh, get into that kind of work. A lot of, a lot of, uh, people, when they look at Haida Gwaii, they do look at sort of the the past, you know, the the old carvings and and the sort of history of the Haida. But what we've done in the last 30, 40 years to you know protect and and uh, take control back on this island, you know, is is quite remarkable. And you know, I don't I don't see that stopping. Right? We so we have decades into the future, and we have a lot of hard work to do. You know, Caitlin, we learned so much from the folks on Haida Gwaii, and for any community looking to make the transition to clean energy, it's clear that bringing the whole population into the endeavour is important. Now, going back to that Haida principle that everything is connected, it makes sense to involve healthcare officials and economic development planners in all of your energy policies. But it's impossible to capture everything we learned in one episode, so we're making all the interviews we did on Haida Gwaii available on our website at Sierra Club. .bc.ca/podcast and you'll find links to the organizations and companies you heard about in this episode. You'll also hear more from Haida Gwaii in our episode about energy democracy since so much of what they're doing lies at the heart of energy democracy. I've got to say it was a real honor to be invited to the Haida Gwaii Renewable Energy Symposium to witness the leadership and the dedication that both the Haida and the non-indigenous residents of Haida Gwaii are bringing to this energy transition. It's a story that I hope inspires many more communities to also stop using fossil fuels 
and to figure out how to support our communities and our economy and each other by transitioning to renewable energy instead. And it's impossible to adequately thank all the people who welcomed us to the symposium on Haida Gwaii, but we are so grateful for the amazing discussions, the food, and yes, the laughs. Thank you all. And thanks this week to North Growth Foundation for making Mission Transition Clean Energy and Beyond possible. You can support more podcasts by donating at our website. Thanks as well to Kat Zimmer at Sierra Club BC for all the many ways she helps to make this podcast happen. This podcast is produced in Victoria on Lekwungen territory. I'm Susan Elrington with Caitlin Vernon. Thank you for listening. <laughs>